Greetings, this is the podcast from First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina. I'm Dr. Chuck McGathy, and today I am coming to you from our sanctuary. I have found uh, various places to try and record. The last several weeks have always uh, presented some situation where there's some ambient noise. And today, while I sit in my office, it is uh, two competing leaf blowers. And if you've ever tried to speak over a leaf blower, you know it's a, a nearly impossible task to do. But I want to welcome you anyway. <laughs> we uh, do the best we can, and I hope that you appreciate the efforts. This uh, particular message is for the second Sunday of Easter, which is uh, the Sunday after Easter. And uh, for those that are familiar with the church calendar, you will know that uh, we talk uh, oftentimes about uh, the, the seasons of the year. But when Easter season comes, it's so important and fundamental, massive really to our faith that we take time enough to examine the different aspects of it. So today's message comes from the Revelation of John. The Revelation of John is undoubtedly the most contentious single book from the entire library of works that compose the Bible. Calling the Bible a library, by the way, is a pretty good way to think of Scripture. The Bible is, in fact, a collection of writings, uh, 66 separate books, some of which have multiple authors and others whose authorship is entirely unknown. While there is an amazing continuity in the overall story, there does admittedly exist a lively and ongoing conversation from cover to cover about our relationship with God. As Christians, we claim that the clearest picture of God is through Jesus Christ. By making Him the lens through which we read all the Scriptures, we better understand the writings collected from a vast array of authors using differing styles and writing from differing circumstances. Nowhere is this more important than in the reading of a book like Revelation. And just because it requires a bit more work should not force us to abandon its use to the kooky and the strange, uninformed and on occasion even dangerous misusers of the written testimony of our faith heritage. With that auspicious introduction, let me, let's see if we can make better sense of this fascinating and enduring part of the Bible. It is my hope and prayer that at the end of our journey, you will see how the resurrection of Jesus is the center of the book and the great reason we have hope from its intended message. I am reading from the voice translation Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. I, John, to the seven churches in Asia, may you experience God's favor and rest in the peace that comes from the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is coming. From the seven spirits, the perfect spirit, constantly before God's throne, and from Jesus, the anointed, the witness who is true and faithful, the first to emerge from death's cold 
womb, the chosen ruler over all the kings and rulers of the earth, to the one who loves us and liberated us from the grip of our evil deeds through his very own blood and who established us to be his kingdom and priest for God, his Father. May glory and power be his throughout all the ages. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds in glory. He will capture every eye, even those who pierced him through. All the nations of the earth will be pierced with grief when he appears. Yes, may all this be done according to his plan. Amen. Lord God, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the very beginning and the very end, the one who is and the one who was and the one who is coming, the all-powerful. Well, I want you to know there are a few things that we need to know before we begin a resurrection journey through Revelation. The first thing I'd like you to know is that this book is understandable. In fact, it is not all that hard to understand given a few important truths. Ignoring or being unaware of these important considerations has both in the past and now in our present led to faulty interpretations and tragic applications of this dramatic work of the biblical author. Please know this also. Revelation is unlike most of the rest of the Bible in that it uses a style of literature that only flourished for a brief period of time. Apocalyptic writing was a literary form that only existed for about 300 years. We have two biblical books written mainly in apocalyptic style, Daniel from the Hebrew Scriptures and Revelation from the New Testament. Now, in no way do I want to turn a Sunday morning message into a lengthy and perhaps even boring lecture on the apocalyptic style of writing, but there are some things you must know. The first and perhaps the most important thing is this. The apocalyptic revelation of John was understood by its original audience. In other words, it was not a mysterious code for future events that they could not possibly comprehend because they, the original hearers, could and did understand its message. It is important that we enter into their world and read it from their perspective. This one fact alone puts many popularized interpretations of Revelation on shaky ground. You see, to accept most of the speculative theories regarding the end times, you must first believe that the original audience was in the dark about the exact meaning of the words. And not only that, but you also must believe that the writer of this biblical book did not know what he meant either. According to those who believe in Revelation as a book of prognostications about the future, it can only be after centuries have passed that the meaning of the Revelation of John becomes fully understood. That type of interpretation that discounts the original context, writers and readers, counters the way we read every other book of the Bible. Consistent 
and quality biblical interpretation calls for us to understand what the text meant to the original hearers and then apply the lessons learned to our experience, not the reverse. Now, it's not that Revelation has no meaning for us, but we must first understand the meaning it had at the end of the first century when it was composed. Now, doing that will not be easy. It can be done, but first we are going to have to work a bit. We're going to have to find a way to explore and understand the world of the first century believer in Jesus Christ, probably of Jewish background and understanding, who lived in an area of Asia Minor. Unless we do this first, we will get quickly lost in a maze of apocalyptic illusions that will make no sense. You see, we will have to know something of their history, ancient culture and beliefs, the nuances of the Greek language. And even after all of that, we will have some areas of shadow where we can only find hints of the meaning behind the word pictures. Now that brings me to a second idea. That must also be explained. In, it is this. Apocalyptic writers used fantastic imagery to express their ideas in ways that were easily understood by the target audience, but at the same time veiled or hidden to outsiders. I can best illustrate this by comparing it, by putting it alongside by contrasting it, maybe, to a modern form of communication called the political cartoon. Picture in your mind a ravenous bear trying to devour a small animal. Only the diminutive animal fights back fiercely. Though nearly swallowed, the small animal reaches out its claws to grasp the bear by its throat. In the background, behind the bear are burning tanks, a sinking ship, and a defiant soldier waving a blue and yellow flag. No words are used, just a picture. Now, we understand what that means, don't we? We do not need a bunch of words, a written explanation to know that this cartoon picture is a commentary about a failing invasion by Russia into Ukraine. But what if 2,000 years from now, a person saw that same cartoon hmm. and then tried to figure it out? What if 2,000 years from now, a person not knowing what we know, looked at that and thought, perhaps this is a prediction of the future, not knowing its anchor in actual history. Maybe they will see the bear as something else. Maybe they will look for tanks and ships to come along sometime in their present. Maybe they will even go so far as to say this was a written guide to the future. Well, I think you can easily see how easy it would be to take a message designed for an ancient audience and somehow update it to fit present concerns, but that would also be a misuse 
of the writer's intended message. He knew what he was saying, and his readers knew what he was describing. The final truth to know is this. The writer of Revelation was concerned with the future, but he made it clear all of this was going to happen in the near future. It says in chapter 1, verse 1, that these events must soon take place. And in verse 3, blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Could it be that in a rush to read the details of this book that the very time frame proposed by the author has somehow been overlooked? If so, then it is, is it possible that we might have missed something? Maybe there's a better way to understand this book. The nature of apocalyptic literature, the usage of fantastic visions and imagery, and the insistence of the author that these events would soon transpire causes me to consider another approach to understanding this book that is popularized today. But how do we begin? I'd like to suggest that the context of the writing might be an appropriate place to launch our understanding into Revelation. There were multiple threats that converged to put enormous pressure on the early church in the last decade of the first century. There was the devastation of war and its accompanying problems of famine and disease. Natural disaster played a role in unsettling the civilized world. And then there were the very human problems of political corruption, religious hypocrisy, and genuine persecution. These were very real nightmares for the fledgling church and in many ways still are for the church 2,000 years since. Yet, it was their problems the author wrote about. But when he applies the solution, the resurrected Jesus, we too are moved and inspired. We too can know that no matter what, God has provided a way of rescue and hope through the one who had victory over sin and death. Times were hard for Christians. To begin with, there was a genocidal war against the nation of Israel. The Christian religion was born in Judaism, and so they felt the disruption that the Jewish wars, as they were called, created. There were, in fact, three wars between the Romans and the Jews. These took place between 63 and 135 A.D. That adds up to 72 years of war. Just think about that. Now consider the results. The Jewish people were turned from a major population in, eastern, in the eastern Mediterranean into a scattered and persecuted minority. The wars were a disaster to Jewish society. This Holocaust had a major impact on Judaism itself. The central worship site, the temple in Jerusalem, was destroyed by Titus's troops in 70 A.D., a Jewish homeland was regained only in the mid-20th century with the founding of the modern state of Israel in 1948. Now that alone deeply affected the early church that followed Jesus, but who also were Jews. It was a devastation like no other. Even Adolf Hitler was not able to accomplish the degree of evil that the Roman Empire had inflicted. Yet there was more than just war. Just as we are seeing today with war in the Ukraine, along with creating a, a deposed people, a disposed people, war also brings famine and disease. It was no different for those first readers of 
revelation. In fact, it probably was much worse. The food supply was threatened, and we know that plagues raged through the overcrowded places to which the refugees had fled. These were described as the horsemen of the apocalypse, and it was their ongoing reality. But the events that shook the souls of the church were not just war or the results of war. There was also horrific natural disaster. In 79 AD, a tremendous explosion rocked the civilized world. In a matter of hours, the entire top of Mount Vesuvius exploded, wiping out entire cities of which Pompeii and Herculaneum were the largest. Ash filled the entire Mediterranean sky for weeks. And what is more, it brought unusual fear. Was it God's judgment against pagan Rome for destroying the temple? Might this sort of thing happen again and to them? Keep this in mind as you read the 18th chapter of Revelation and it will make more sense. War, natural disaster, and finally human sinfulness created the triumvirate of bad times for the early church. Human behavior itself caused much suffering. All people suffered, but especially the church was afflicted. There was rampant political corruption without religious hypocrisy within and finally persecution of the church. Genuine. Persecution is different than the persecution so often described in our day. Persecution is not merely being restricted from praying a prayer at a public venue or being forbidden from discriminating against others. Please do not mistake that as the same thing as genuine persecution. Christian people were excluded from commerce, driven out of communities, and even tortured and killed for their belief. These episodes of persecution accompanied by Christians abandoning and denying their faith, even turning others in to save their own skin or to make a buck is also the setting for the writing of this final book of Scripture. Let's look a bit more closely and see how this vaccinating address to a church under pressure begins. This book of encouragement begins by addressing seven churches. There may actually have been more churches, but for the sake of this letter, seven are addressed. At any rate, the number seven is highly symbolic. It is meant to include all churches. They are distinctive congregations, each taking on a personal identity or spirit. That is why each is acknowledged to possess a spirit. And that makes me wonder, do churches of our they also have a communal spirit. Is a church like a single soul loving and welcoming, emulating Christ? Or perhaps a church can be lukewarm or worse in the application of its faith. It seems that was the case then and it could also be the case now. This is a positive book, though, in spite of its horrific imagery that frightens so many into morbid fascination, keeping in mind the nature of the world around them, how very positive and affirming to hear the churches under such pressure told grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. The book begins with a clear statement of what is coming. It says that no matter what you're undergoing, the devastations of war, want, disease, disaster, or persecution, take heart. Take heart because God is with you. You have been given grace. The eternal God is on your side. Tracking further to the passage, we learn more. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus, you see, was faithful in spite of the pain of the cross, and he leads us through our pain to faithfulness and victory. We can trust him because of the resurrection. That is what 
firstborn of the dead means. Our king has established a kingdom that cannot be conquered by Rome or by any other earthly power. And oh, how that good news must have spoken hope to their weary hearts. They were assured that God's kingdom will come as surely as the sun will rise. They were triumphant. And we too are triumphant. This is what explains the writer because Jesus loves us and has freed us from our sins. Think about that. Jesus loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us to be a kingdom priest serving His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. These are words of hope in the resurrection that changes everything. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is demonstrated in our Lord. Then he adds a final word. Almost anticipating their questions. What about our persecutors? What about the evil ones and the evil things that beset us? What will become of them? To those questions, the answer is given. Their day will come. They will receive the judgment they have earned. Look, He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And on His account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. This biblical allusion was explained rather well by Monsignor Charles Pope, who has led Bible studies for the U.S. Congress. He wrote, when Jesus speaks of coming on the clouds, we need not interpret this in a merely crude and literalistic way. To the ancient Jews, the clouds were an image of glory, an image of heaven, and were also an image of God's judgment. As an image of glory, the clouds both revealed and hid God's glory. In Exodus, God led them in the pillar of cloud by day, which appeared as a column of fire by night. This cloud revealed God's presence, yet it also hid it. In the desert, the presence of God was indicated by the Shekinah, the glory cloud that descended on the tent of meeting. It both revealed God's glory and presence, and yet also hid it from the people, could not withstand God's glory in all of its fullness. So on one level, Jesus is saying that the men of his day would see him as the son of man coming on the clouds is saying that they would see him in all his glory. He is saying that they would see and experience his powerful kingdom breaking into this world, whether they liked it or not. The final word of introduction affirms the great underlying truth of this book of scripture. I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The almighty to a people in great distress and turmoil, the promise of the enduring presence and ultimate return of Christ is their great comfort. And you know what? It is our comfort too. This book is not about reading tea leaves of the future, but about the fact of the resurrection and that we are loved and held safe in the arms of God. You see, he has already won the battle. He has defeated sin and death. Hallelujah. Let us pray. Alpha and Omega, we are so amazed that just as you spoke to our first brothers and sisters in the turmoil of their times, so too you speak to us. We are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. Give us a spirit of hope. We look to the clouds for hope. And we love to share our hope with all we meet. Thank you for your great salvation. We are resurrected with you. Amen.